let's assume then that, that there are conditions in there, a condition of inspection, a condition of environmental, condition of appraisal, a condition of financing, which is those are the standard four that you're going to run into for a commercial level. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Hey, real estate investors, it is Sarah Larby and welcome back to another episode of Where Should I Invest? Today, we are going to be speaking with Claire Barrett and I've known Claire probably for the past year and a half. She's been coming to a lot of the Right Club meetings. As you guys know, I am a huge believer of working with a realtor that is knowledgeable on investing, that is also doing it themselves and is local. So Claire is a great resource. She's a realtor for Keller Williams and uh, really focuses on the Hamilton area in both commercial, multifamily and residential. And she's got a degree in economics. She's also worked in the financial industry for the last 25 years. So one of the things that I wanted to do today is talk about what you want to find in your ideal realtor, what you want to ask, what your clauses might look like. So if you're buying a commercial property, for example, there are some different clauses that you have to have in there and how to best also utilize your realtor to do a lot of the legwork for you. And one of the things I get asked often is, hey, I'm interested in finding a property or a great deal or a commercial property, like 10 unit, for example. How do I do it? I think part of it is to understand most of the deals do not happen on MLS. And so this is why having a realtor that will be local and really understands investing and the financials behind it is going to be a game changer. You want to make sure your realtor is connected to other realtors in the market, but also sellers, property managers, and they really are going to help you find the best deals. And the best of all is as you're buying, don't sell, but as you're buying, you don't really have to pay your realtor because they get paid from the seller and really at the end of the day, they are going to be a key member on your team. And so I wanted to bring Claire on board to talk to you guys just about what to look for and talk about her experience, but also some really important clauses and things to consider as you're making those offers. So without further ado, guys, let's talk to Claire. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. So first, let's dig a little bit into how you got started as a realtor. Wow. I really kind of fell into it. I had spent a lot of years in the investment industry, worked on Bay Street. I worked as a financial planner and just, I have an economics degree and always just really loved investing. And you know, I had, I kind of took a hiatus for a little while when my kids were little. And when I was going back to work, somebody looked at me one day and said, you'd be a great real estate agent. You know everybody in town. Because at the time I was on school councils and working for school boards and things like that. And I went, okay. <laughs> and I just, I loved, I loved working with my clients as a financial advisor. So I really wanted to bring that back in. And I was raised old school. Like I was raised with GIs. My parents actually bought me Canada savings bonds. Oh, wow. So I was raised with Canada savings bonds, GICs, stocks, mutual funds, and things like that. And when I came in thinking I was going to do this residential business, I was exposed. And don't get me wrong, I still love doing residential. I just find that I was exposed to this world where real estate investing, it just made sense. It was like the light bulb went off. And I was like, why is everybody not doing this? And I just devoured the information because it was, it was absolutely fascinating to me. And I look at it now, honestly, Sarah, and as much as because I came late to the game, as much as I love what I do, my priority actually is to give this to my kids. I want my, my kids who are teenagers or younger than that, actually, when I started on down this path and my son was 15 and I took him to the rain weekend for kids and to teach them about financial responsibility. I recommend anybody that has really wants to do their child a service, get them into something like that. And here my 14 year old son comes out and he meets one of my clients who did his first investment when he was 20. And I introduced them because I wanted my son to see that. 
And my son has this goal. He wants to have five investment properties by the time he's 25. Nice. That's awesome. (laughs) 17 now. He works at McDonald's. He saves every penny he makes. And he's constantly like, okay, when can I go? When can I go? When can I go? And uh, he just needs to get a little bit more money in the bank. And then off he goes and it'll be the first one and it'll just snowball further. So it's really for my kids. I kind of fell into it, loved it. But my big why is definitely my children. Very cool. Very cool. So I wanted to ask you because it sounds like your, your kids are excited about investing and yes. there's a lot of people that will ask me, I have these kids and they just don't want anything to do with it or they're not interested. What was it that you were able to do or, or how did you approach it for them to be um, interested and excited about it? Oof, I don't know. I mean, you can draw a horse to water. You can't make them drink. I think very often your kids just have to be ready. Uh, for it, honestly. And if you model that for them, it will always be a part of them. We, none of us want to grow up to be our parents, and yet we always take those traits with us to a certain extent. So just continue modeling that for your children. Know that if you surround them with that, that just through being in that environment, it will be an option for them. And show them your passion. Include them in it. Ask them their opinion. They're young. They're not stupid. I always say that about my kids, you know, they're young, they're not stupid people, they just lack experience. So give them that experience. And even if they don't want to today, because they're 14, 15, they're more worried about makeup or girls or boys or whatever the case may be. It, if it's part of their environment, it, it will come. It's funny that you mentioned you were a financial advisor. I was a financial advisor too for about six months. And you know what I realized? <laughs> I really wanted to teach people how to do it themselves rather than you yes. know, spend so much money on these commissions and fees. And it just, it didn't feel right. And you couldn't show them how to buy properties. And because at the end of the day, unfortunately, the majority of me included, and I didn't do it for very long, we get paid on commission. And if you don't sell something that pays commission, and and it just didn't work for me because I was like trying to help these people. And I didn't think that what I was offering them was really in their best interest if they wanted to be hands-on. Uh, Well, okay. So here's the thing. Having come from the financial industry, it depends on which part of it you're in really. You work with some places and it's proprietary products. You can only sell their company's products. And I do have a problem with that. I think though that uh, one of the reasons why I like working with investors is I actually feel to some extent, I mean, referrals when you're dealing with residential, I'm always welcome and I'm always happy and I always give, give my best, except a really good investor is going to buy from you time and time and time again, if you do your job well. So to some extent, I know that like, I got to bring my A game. They're going to ask me questions and I better darn well know the answer. And there's no, I hold myself to a level of integrity that is very critical to me. And it has got to be in their best interest. I tell people right from the get-go, I will look at you and say, you're not buying this. You're not. Right. Absolutely not. I would probably say 70% of my job working with investors and even seasoned investors is educating them and preparing them to make decisions when really good opportunities come along. Because we have, I always say, the biggest regret is going to be the regret of not moving fast enough. And that is my job. My job is to get you prepared. So the people who work with me, they, there's a lot of education up front. And I, and I tell them, if we run across a unicorn, which we do every once in a while, I'm going to ask you to make decisions fast and quick. So you bet I need you to be comfortable with those decisions now. I'll never make you do anything you don't want to do, except it might be the difference between you winning something and not winning something. And I try to get them comfortable with those decisions at at the outset. That's really smart. I just met with some investors this week and they were brand new. They wanted to get started. They wanted to get started in Brantford. And I said, you got to go out there and you got to see the mediocre deals, what's on the market, learn the area, because if there is a good deal that comes around, you won't even know that it's a good deal because you haven't seen what else is out there to compare it to. And so that is a huge tip and definitely something that you want to familiarize yourself. And once you pick an area, stick to that area and really become that market expert. So, so Claire, when somebody is looking to pick the realtor that they, they want to work with, what are some things that they should really consider? I think for investors in particular, I think you want to be asking them how much production they actually do. I think that that's very key. How many times have they found great opportunities for their clients? There's a lot of realtors out there who do, like the average realtor does less than four deals a year in the Hamilton Burlington board. 
So you need to know that there's somebody who are producing at a really high level and then ask them about their systems. For all intents and purposes, I always say to my investors, you're building a business and I am your acquisitions person. Okay. I'm that that's my job is Mm -hmm. to hunt out and locate great opportunities. No different than a talent scout would in sports or I can't think of another analogy, but, but I'm acquisitions. So you are hiring me as your power team. This isn't a one-time transaction. This is an ongoing relationship. So how often, what are my references? Ask me for references. Don't look at your testimonials, ask for references. How many deals have you done? I think it's very critical. Give me some examples of some deals that went really well and why you consider them to be really good. Give me an example of a deal that didn't go well (laughs) and why do you think it didn't go well? No different than, honestly, Sarah, than when you're interviewing somebody for a job. Right. Uh, You are building a business and you need to interview them like you're interviewing an employee. Absolutely. So you do a lot of commercial as well as residential. Do you do more commercial? I would say I probably do more residential. I do more smaller multifamilies, not for a lack of wanting to do the larger commercial. They're simply extremely hard to find. Yeah. Far between. And I'll give you an example. I went in Hamilton. They have the Hamilton, it's called the HDAA is the acronym. Don't ask me what it stands for, but it's for the Apartment Owners Association. And uh, somebody brought me in and there was a speaker there who was a realtor from another institution. And he put up five apartment buildings as examples on the board and I had sold three of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, went, I was with another realtor at the time and I said, I, I sold three of those. And he's like, yeah, why didn't you sell all five? But they are, it's, uh, it, at least in my market, it is a very tight inventory, especially for purpose-built buildings. They don't tend to be on MLS. Uh, they're not very often, do they actually trade hands? Very often they trade privately. So my systems and models for finding that inventory is very different than it would be for residential. And for whatever reason, right now, the smaller multi-units are more, there's just more of them moving and there's not a lot on the market. So, but yes, I do do commercial multifamily, not commercial, like industrial space though. Right. So that is something that I just want to ask you a few more questions about, if you don't mind, is just because, and I am a big believer of this too, by the time a good multifamily hits MLS or a multifamily property in general, it's gotten so many eyeballs on it already and probably didn't get purchased and scooped up behind the scenes. (laughs) And I even had an email from a listener this week asking, hey, you know, what deals are there available? I'm like, you know, to be honest, like you really have to be in already to be able to get those offers because you look on MLS, Mm -hmm. the numbers just don't make as much sense. Mm -hmm. And how does somebody that's starting, that's not already in connected, how do they go about getting those before they hit MLS? It's simply a matter of networking. No different than when you're looking for JV money or you're looking for, you're looking at your wholesaling. You're simply putting yourself out there and asking everybody. Um, so I would get in the habit, I would go and I would preview small multifamilies for clients. And then as I'm leaving, if another realtor was coming in, it's simply a matter of being comfortable, being uncomfortable and asking them the question. So ask anybody you know, what do you have coming up? And who do you know that works in this, this playing field? Can I have their name and number? And then call them. It's really absolutely that simple. But you have to do it. It's not enough to do it. So for people who wholesale or for me who lead generates through cold calling or whatever the case may be, it's not a matter of talking to like 100 people and then saying, oh, I talked to 100 people and I didn't get any results and walking away, you probably are going to have to talk to a thousand and you just keep going knowing that that works. And I promise you it does. That's how I found my inventory. You build relationships with these people who you know work in that playing field. If you ever want to find some motivation, there's a great sales book by a man named Jeb Blunt, B-L-O-U-N-T, and it's called Fanatical Prospecting. So you simply set your goal that you are going to find and talk to five people who are exposed to that commercial level of business and reach out to them and simply always be looking for those opportunities. If you know it intrinsically inside that that's what you're going to do and that's where you're going to go, then you'll see the opportunities as well. Awesome. That's really well said. 
And it's funny too, because most of the investors that are already buying a lot of residential, like for me, I would love to find a commercial property, but again, it doesn't come as often. And when somebody says, Hey, should I do multifamily or should I go into residential? My question back to them is if you wait for the multifamily, is it going to be 10 years or five years later? And could you buy something sooner? Is it better to get in the markets now? Or is it better to wait to find that, that perfect multifamily if that takes time? I think one of the things that you have to remember is how much of the work you're leveraging off. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Right? So this is what I do all day, every day. It's not uncommon for me. So I have a list of commercial realtors and I will call all those commercial realtors. I have a list of people who own multifamilies and I'll call because that's my job and I have the time. Right. Okay. I don't have any problems with anybody doing this on their own. That's fine. Except they have to do the activity. And if you're not not in a position because you have a full-time job or you have a demanding family or it's something that you're just so uncomfortable doing that you're never going to get your wrap your head around it, then hire somebody to do it. Otherwise it will never happen. And at some point investors have to look at the economies of scale of larger buildings. Eventually your goal is all to progress to that point where owning a hundred single family homes isn't making sense anymore. And you're always looking for best use of your money. Right. If you're not in a position to do it, then hire somebody who is. And I do mean it when I say, though, like thousand calls, you might find one person. (laughs) So they might as well work with somebody that's already in the loop. Yeah. Well, like I said, if you're going to do it, then great. Yeah. I'm not going to do it because absolutely the deals that are hitting MLS at the commercial multifamily level are not deals. They're not. Right. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. There are some, but typically if they're on them on the MLS, they've already been vetted through all the agents who are known to work in that in that playing field anyway and have been passed over for whatever reason. So yeah. I tend to sort of stay away from them. Okay. Um, but also negotiations, like they, they negotiate very differently, not just because the contracts are more complicated, but it's because they all the agents all know each other. They we all know each other. I know their patterns. I know one guy I know, he, he always comes to me for like three months. Have you got a buyer? Have you got a buyer? And I'm like, not at that price, not at that price, not at that price. <laughs> and then he goes on MLS because he thinks somebody's going to come in from out of town and give him that price. And then he waits and then he looks. I know what his pattern is. So I'm just saying that's also another thing you want to consider in your, in your power team, unless you're working in that, in that playing field regularly or can't. That's some really good insights. I mean, I didn't, so I, I obviously I know you, but I didn't know that you have so many other additional opportunities. I would just say people like finding people like Claire or Claire <laughs> and, well, and that work done. So. And here's the thing, like not necessarily commercial because sometimes the buyers have to pay a commercial agent depending on the contract. Right. Listen, honestly, Sarah, me or somebody, if you're not, if you're not doing this as a full-time job, then like leverage it off. Leverage it off. You're not paying a buyer's agent to find you opportunity. The seller is. It's already contracted out. And so why would you not take advantage of that? And find one who is, and and here's for novice investors, find one who you feel at the end of the day, even if maybe something you don't find the deal that you're going to find, that you come away knowing more Mm -hmm. than you did before. And I, I mean, I worked with one investor and I'm like, listen, my goal is that you don't need me which is probably all the realtors are cringing right now, but (laughs) my goal is to get you to the point where you don't need me. Uh, You might still use an agent because you're going to leverage it off because you're running now a property management company or a capital company, or, you know, you still need an acquisitions person. My goal is though that you don't, if I were to drop off the face of the earth, your business wouldn't fall to pieces. I don't want them dependent. It is always, always their choice. I just, there to give my two cents. Awesome. So before somebody really starts, you know, making offers, is there some different things that you recommend that they have in place, like their financials, like really understand oh, what? Wow. I have a whole system. Like okay. I said, 70% of my job is getting you prepared for the offer. So Can I you always talk say, a little bit about the, the systems. Well, I always say, so I do, I train a lot of realtors as well. I teach in class a lot. And I always say to them at the buyer consult that meeting that I have with you to find out what it is you're looking for. As far as I'm concerned, you're already my client. So that meeting isn't about anything except getting you prepared for when we find the right opportunity. 
and what that's going to look like for you. So particularly for people who are going to hire me to actually hunt out deals, I have to figure out what it is they're looking for, what their priorities are, what their business model is, how to effectively execute that to appropriately to fit their business model, because investors all have different business models. I'm not here to judge theirs, whether they use a burr or they use a flip or they use a buy and hold. I'm simply there as acquisitions to execute. And then once I have an understanding of what that is, then it is a matter of getting them prepared. So there's a, a series of educational pieces that I send them. I forewarn them. I future pace a lot of things that they might come across. A brand new investor who's coming to Hamilton, we talk about knob and tube because you're going to find it. It's, it right. You're going to find it, but it's not a deal breaker. It's something that you need to incorporate into your cost. I talk about the legalities and zonings in Hamilton because it's complicated. For people who particularly aren't used to older homes, I'll talk about the fact that, no, you're not going to be able to stand up in the basement. (laughs) So that if the third house that I show them is an absolute steal, like it's a no-brainer unicorn, Mm -hmm. they know going in and feel confident going in to make decisions. Uh, and if they're not yet, I say then I haven't done my job. My job is to get them comfortable. And then my job is to find it. I future pace the fact that very often I, I'll look at a hundred properties. So you look at 10. Right. Good. So I'll take you out to look at properties what, that are on the MLS. That's more for me to get an understanding of what you're looking for and what you're comfortable with in terms of your risk factor or your aesthetic factor or what your priorities are. Typically, though, what it will be is it will be a phone call. It will be a phone call saying, I just found it. I I just found it. You need to come. (laughs) In fact, you referred somebody to me, and that's exactly what happened. I was like, I called him in the morning. I'm like, yeah, I just found it. We need to move. And that's how he got into a really great property for an amazing price. I'm still shocked. So, yeah, it's very much education. There's a whole system set up to get you ready. Commercial as well. People think you're, you're right to some extent. People think they're going to swoop in and they're going to find a commercial property. It doesn't move that way. No. It doesn't. And the sellers are just very different to deal with. I want them to be prepared for that because it's a whole different set of parameters when you're dealing with people at that level. So, Where should I invest with your host, Sarah Larvey? We'll be right back. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick moment and pause the podcast interview here because I wanted to introduce you to Dahlia Barsoom of Streetwise Mortgages. I am a big believer, as you guys probably have heard, work with a mortgage broker. They are going to help you scale. And when I was first growing in real estate investing and looking to buying my second property and my third property, I was going directly to the bank then. I hadn't met Dahlia yet. And I actually was hitting a roadblock when it came to financing because the bank started asking me for 25% as the down payment. And then for my third property, they wanted 35%. And it was really, really hard for me to A, understand why it was creeping up like that. And B, I didn't have 35% to put down. I had 20%. And luckily, I actually met Dahlia at that point in time. And Dahlia is actually an investor herself, and she works with many, many investors. And she knows all the pitfalls and the barriers that normally come up with dealing directly with a bank and all the different lenders. And Dahlia was actually able to not just find me proper alternatives, but I've got nine properties now, and I'm still able to get financing with A-lenders, and it allows me to be able to scale up without hitting the financing wall. And so she's been a tremendous help. So the other thing I really, really enjoy is Dahlia also does a free goals analysis. So if you go to either my website or her website, streetwisemortgages.com, mention the podcast and ask for the free goals analysis, it was a game changer for me. And it allowed me to actually understand what I needed to do, how many properties I was going to get because of the cash flow that I was looking for. If you guys wanted to reach out to Dahlia, you can reach out to her by email, which is info at streetwisemortgages.com, or you can actually reach out to her on the website at streetwisemortgages.com, and then just go to the contact section. And you can also call her at 1-800-208-208. 6255. Thanks for listening and back to the show. 
back to the show. Where should I invest? Real estate investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. So Claire, I'm just wondering, because you're obviously doing a lot of work preparing the investor, educating yes. the investor. So what do you recommend that from the time that they put in an offer, are there specific clauses or specific things? And how do you take walk them through until basically the house closes? So as soon as they sit in a buyer consultation with me, they receive a, a templated offer that includes all the clauses, whether they're taking vacant possession or they're inheriting tenants uh, or whatever the case may be, like the, the more standard ones, but at a commercial level, even for uh, someone who's buying a single family home, I'll send them like the commercial level one because it, ha it has more clauses. And I say, okay, I need you to read this over. I need you to come at me with all of your questions because when we go to do an offer, we might not have time to review and it is a contract and I need to know that you've understood it. And I'll follow up and I'll say, okay, did you read it over? What are your questions? Once an offer goes in, let's assume then that, that there are conditions in there, a condition of inspection, a condition of environmental, condition of appraisal, a condition of financing, which is those are the standard four that you're going to run into for a commercial level. Barring I'm out of the country and there's no way we can schedule this, I attend all of them. I'm not typical. <laughs> so when I go, because I work so much with buyers and because so much of it is just different, I, like I bring a tool bag in with me. Right. So even before we go into the inspection, we have, I'm not an inspector, but I have some idea of some red flags and I'll take the inspector right there. I'll be like, okay, none of these outlets are grounded. You need to tell me, is this knob and tube or not? Or that plumbing looks like it could be Kitech plumbing. Like, is it or not? So you attend those meetings, barring anything unforeseen. And that also has to do with the fact that inspectors and environmental engineers can only do so much. And I'll be damned if something that I'm working on isn't going to close because somebody's not comfortable opening a door. Right. I'll just open it. <laughs> ladders into roofs. Oh, wow. Crawl spaces. I don't dress very nice for these things because it always ends up messy. So do you have your own team of inspectors and do you have your, or is it usually the, the buyer that will have theirs already set up? So again, at the buyer consult, I talk to them to get all their ducks in the row. And one of the questions is we might not have an opportunity, particularly well with residential 18 months ago, there was no way you were getting an inspection through, right? right? You just, just weren't, it was the nature, but I'm very conservative in nature. So I would have my clients, at the buyer consult, I'd send them information on two inspectors. I always give two references. It is always their choice. And I'll say, I'll give them their websites, their phone numbers, their names, and I'll say, okay, do what you need to do to feel comfortable with the inspector that you're going to hire. And sometimes if it's commercial, they'll say, well, which one do you recommend? It's residential, mm -hmm. which one do you recommend? And I'll tell them which one and why, but I'll ask them to make those questions, those things up front if they don't already have that in place. Okay. Now, do you recommend that the buyer be there at those, the inspection as well, like to learn or? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. There are occasions where they can't, or maybe this is their 20th house and they, I had one lady she would buy sight unseen. She just had a very busy job. She had done a lot of deals with us and, and had done a lot of deals in Hamilton. And I'd call her and I'd say, found it. And she'd go, okay, great. She'd call her property manager, her inspector. Like we put an offer in on condition of inspection or what condition of walkthrough sometimes for commercial. And we get an accepted offer. She'd call her property manager. She'd call her inspector. They would come through with me. She still wouldn't see it. She'd get a report back. She'd get input from all three of her power team and she closed mm -hmm. seeing it. Wow. <laughs> but she had done it enough times and she had a power team that she trusted. Her time was better spent at her executive position. That's where she was better making her money. And she had worked with us often enough that she felt comfortable absolutely leveraging. Listen, Steve Jobs does not walk around the floor. No. Steve Jobs didn't, sorry, walk around the floor of Apple testing all the keyboards. No, right? of course not. And I 100% I agree though, like at some point, because I've done the same thing, like I've bought my cottage from a FaceTime video and then I've bought some houses side and seen, however, I've seen them before the closing. I've seen them just to you know, double check and I've usually had tenants come through regardless, but right. I think, and, I've, and it's for single family properties, these, these ones, but I think when you have a good team in place, you don't always have to see everything once you've done a couple. Like, I don't know if I would recommend it on the first 
no. property because I think it's an education piece that you can also learn a lot from just being there and going through the whole process. But, but at some point you may not have time to yep. go and see it. Like I've had to purchase a house within four hours of it hitting the market a couple of years exactly. ago. <laughs> if I would have waited, there were already four offers actually already. We had to remove all conditions. Yep. We went through it because we were market experts in Brantford and we really knew the area. Mm-hmm. I knew what rent it could be. A lot of this stuff becomes second nature. And right. would I have done that on my first one? Absolutely not. But this was house set. I think it was like five or six at the time. And I didn't think it was that big of a deal. And I'm like, I trust my team, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and it was the best purchase I've actually probably done. <laughs> well, a really great mantra is, uh, I'd say you need to be hands-on until you can inspect what you expect. Yeah right? Until you know what a good realtor is, or until you know what a good inspector is, and you know the questions to ask to inspect what they're doing, I would say you should always be present. Once you feel like you implicitly trust those people, I would say you still need to double check them because you don't know what's going on in their lives, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you just need to be competent enough to be able to ask them the right questions, right? So mind you, I love an inspection. Like I just, I think they're so, I think they're so fascinating. I love, I, I, there's not an inspector who hasn't taught me an inspection where I haven't learned something new. Any horror stories about an inspection gone wrong? Well, I mean, not all, I, there's always stuff that like comes out of the woodwork. Yeah. I'm fortunate enough that I've, like I said, I, I'll, I'll pick up on red flags. Mm-hmm. So I'll take the inspector straight there and I'll go like, okay, let's, let's take a look at this red flag. And we'll stop the inspection right there. Cause I don't want my client, if it's a showstopper, I don't want my client paying for a full inspection. Right. Absolutely. Right? Save them a little bit of money, particularly when you get to the commercial level, because those are very expensive <laughs> inspections. Horror stories, honestly, they're the, the well, you never found a bunch of rats in the basements or oh, heavens. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I walked into a house. I was previewing a place about three weeks ago and I walked in, it was late at night. It was about nine o'clock at night and it was dark. And I walked into this empty three unit place. I do this all the time. It doesn't bother me. And flipping on the lights. And as I'm going to the bathroom, I flip on a light and there on the floor is just the leg and tail of a squirrel. None of the rest of the squirrel. Just a leg and tail. And I'm like, oh, okay. Raccoons scratching at walls. Oh, mice running in front of me. But yeah. honestly, it's a, uh, yeah, I've gone into some pretty interesting places. There. I guess those are, are no longer horror stories because you've seen it all. <laughs> I actually get excited. Yeah. I know it sounds crazy. I get excited when I find those places. Actually, that's one of the things I really love with the buy, rehab, refi, and rent model. It, it really excites me when I can go into a place and I can see what it can be. And I'm working with somebody I know who's going to make a house or a place that maybe hasn't had love and care and bring it back. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm actually getting goosebumps just saying it. Like you can go into a place that is got mice, all, all sorts of horrible things. I, like I always say, and it was one of the reasons I like working in Hamilton. I love working in these old places because I kind of feel like they have a soul, if that sounds really hokey. <laughs> they have a soul. And when somebody comes along and just polishes and cleans them up again, they can be made to be really beautiful. And I think that's one of the things that attracts me to Hamilton is seeing so much of this change that's happening and being a part of that is just, it's very rewarding. I've seen places where like, I wouldn't leave my dogs there, let alone a human being. And uh, somebody came in and made it a home for somebody that was affordable and safe and clean and nice. And that just felt really good. That's really great. Good. Really yeah. awesome. So I do want to take a little bit of a turn and just go back to the clauses for a second, just because oh, yeah. when you're looking at commercial, there's mm-hmm. a lot of clauses and you mentioned environmental and is there a specific, so once you have these clauses, is there mm-hmm. a specific order that people need to go through? Like, do they do their financial clause first with the inspection? And then if that passes, they do the environmental because it's more expensive or how does that all work? It's a little bit harder to do at the commercial level um, because like I mentioned before, the cost, to, the cost to fulfill each of those clauses is a fair bit of money. Right. And the reality is that sometimes those people are hard to book. They tend to be a little more specialized. Um, like not a lot of people do commercial inspections or commercial right. environmentals. And the reality also is, is that commercial sellers are, they're a little more obstinate and don't move if you understand what I mean, it's a very hard to get an extension at the commercial level. Okay. And it's a lot of money on the line. Right. 
So typically the first thing you do is you, you're never going to see a whole commercial building before you have an accepted offer. You, you just, you won't, it's not standard. It's not what they do. So your first clause is going to be on condition of walkthrough of all units. You're going to have that probably in the first five business days. So there's no money up front there. You're going to just go through with your realtor. Usually the listing realtor goes through as well because the tenants and everything else or a property manager goes through with you. And you're going to look at all the units. So come prepared for a, a long day, comfortable, and a lot of note paper because you're going to take notes on every unit. You're going to be strategizing what you're going to do right then and there. You're going to be writing down your red flags because the next stage is the inspector. And the inspector, you're going to, it's very thorough. I think the longest inspection I did once was eight hours. Okay. How many Uh, buildings or how many units was that? That was 26 units, uh, two side-by-side buildings. It was an older building. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot of work. It was eight hours. And your inspector is going to go through, should be going through most of the units, should be spending a large amount of time in the basement though, particularly for those buildings. Now all of a sudden you've got flat roofs and it's just a little more complicated. And if possible, if they don't have a fire certificate, you're going to maybe want to bring in somebody who knows at least what to look for. But that should be one of your clauses anyway, to see, find out if it's retrofitted. Now the environmental is probably the tough one timing wise, because you have got to book an environmental in Hamilton, at least about 30 days in advance. Oh, wow. And it probably takes them a good three to four weeks to finish the environmental and then your financing needs at minimum of three weeks once they receive the environmental to even give you your financing approval. So you're already about 70 days in. Wow. So, so how long should somebody then ask for closing based on? Well, that's just it. Right? Well, here's the thing. So Sarah, you can ask for that. That doesn't mean they're going to give it to you. Right. So you've got to make it palatable for the seller as well. And depending on, what the situation is, you might be competing with other people. So I usually say to people, the reality is, is you're going to have to book your environmental as soon as you have an accepted offer. So you've already got skin in the game for at least the deposit of that environmental. Otherwise, you're, you're going to ask for such a long closing that the seller is never going to agree. And chances are, you're not going to be able to extend that date at, at, at that point anyway. Because right. a, lot of, I guess a lot of commercial sellers, they're like, well, not my problem. You can't make your deadline. See you later. <laughs> they're well, all business, right? There's no feels. Right. No feels. So that's um, a phase one. So just for people to get an idea, like how much is a phase one environmental? A phase one environmental, it depends on the complexity, but it usually is going to run about probably around 3000 to $5,000. Okay. A lot of the work is done behind the scenes. What they do is they research the area. So they go back through the history of the area and it can be something as simple as there was a dry cleaner there 15, 20 years ago. And now all of a sudden it's a big red flag. So they do, they do a lot of research that way. When you're at the commercial level though, you have to have an environmental for your financing. Mm -hmm. However, I have done deals where there was an environmental done within the last 12 months. So we'll go to the financing company and we'll say, can we, use the environmental and we'll have to give them the name of the company, the date that it was done and everything else. And if they agree to that, we can purchase the environmental assessment off the current owner. So you're, you're looking for outside the box solutions if possible. Mm -hmm. It just, it's the timing of it. They're just, they're really, it takes a long time in Hamilton to get them. So yeah. And then you don't want it to go to phase two, because isn't that like 25 grand or something crazy to get to phase two. So if there is a laundromat or something that happened 10, 15 years ago, gas station or something, is that an automatic phase two? And then your client, it's probably going to be 4,000. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So a phase two, typically what it is, is they, they take core samples out of the ground and then they test the core samples for chemicals. That's where, when you talk phase two, that's the first thing that comes to people's mind. So like, here's the thing when you're making that purchase, granted, you can't go back 15 or 20 years, you can look to see if there's a dry cleaner at the corner today (laughs) Um, and know that that might be an issue. I had one where I'm seeing pipes coming out of the ground that are just capped off and I can't make sense of the pipes. So we're having a conversation with the owner and the inspector going, what were those pipes for ahead of time? before the environmental even comes in, because then maybe we can cut our losses a little bit if necessary, but those shouldn't be deal breakers. They should just be 
priced in. That really comes down to if you have a very savvy investor who has done environmental things before, Hamilton has a really great brown land program where they help people recapture land that may have been contaminated. And it's, it's a, quite a lucrative grant. So you're working at that level. Is that a possibility? Can that absorb some of it? What are the risks? What are, what are the costs, et cetera? Wow. I, I could literally sit here and ask you questions for two hours. There's so much. I can answer them for two hours. Go right ahead. <laughs> Careful what you wish happen. for. <laughs> I love talking about this stuff. So yeah, it's really insightful. And what I like that you also do is you are in the loop with all the financials. You know how to calculate this stuff. Like before you even present it to somebody, you're going to have run the numbers, you're going to have run. my. So I was looking at an 11 unit in Thunder Bay. It mm-hmm. is really cheap. It's still on MLS right now for like three fifty for eleven units, and this guy has like no vacancy allowance. He's got like two thousand dollars, which is like I don't know, like two percent or whatever. They're never going to though. Honestly, they're, they're never going to. Right. So you have to remember that those numbers you're getting given, they're a marketing piece. Yeah. They're not a financial piece, right? So very often they don't have any vacancies at all. They don't have any property management at all. They don't have any maintenance at all. They don't have any staying power fund, right? It's a marketing piece. Mm -hmm. So I'd probably say for those of you who are buying places that have tenants in place or that are rental properties, really make sure that you do your due diligence. And if it is complex due diligence, then put the clause in there. I had a, I just sold a place in St. Catharines. It was a home with an in-law suite and they were absorbing the tenant and bless them. <laughs> they sent in an offer that had no reference to this tenant at all that was in the basement. Oh. None, none. And I was like, for my client's sake, I bounced it back. And I said, no, you need to put something in there about the tenant. Right. Well, how do I write that? So I wrote it out for her and she sent it back to me. Here's the thing though. She didn't write anything about due diligence whatsoever. And then she came back to me after we had a firm offer and she said, can I get the numbers for the utilities and everything else? Mm -hmm. And I mean, we gave her rough numbers, but I had no obligation to do it. Right. No obligation to do it. So for those of you that are doing investment properties where you're inheriting tenants and everything else, really learn how to write a good con. It drives me crazy. If anything drives me crazy, it's poorly written contracts on rental properties the ambiguities just lead to problems. I will be the first to tell you though, that if you're across the negotiation table from me and you don't know how to write a good contract, (laughs) I'm not going to do your job for you. So long as I I will protect my client from a poorly written contract, I'm not going to do your job for you. So make sure you do know how to write a good contract. I've actually had vacant possession on a triplex Hmm. because the person who I wrote the contract to, the listing agent, didn't read the clause properly. Wow. And then she came back to me and she's like, well, what about this? And I said, yeah, but we have a firm contract. You, you didn't like, you didn't advise your clients properly. Yeah, that's a good point. And the other thing to keep in mind too, is it's important that whoever your realtor is, they also know the landlord tenant board being in Ontario. It's so pro tenant. There are things that you can do. There are things that you can't do. They do need the proper paperwork and everything like that. And and it's really, really hard to get a tenant. Like a lot of people might think, Hey, I'm going to buy multifamily. The rents Mm -hmm. are so low. I'm just Mm going to ask for it vacant and I'm going to like fix it up and re-rent it. Yeah. Good luck. You know, you know (laughs) what surprises me is how many realtors actually don't know it. I mean, theoretically three units and up, you can't ask for vacant possession. Right. You can't. So how are you going to achieve that? And what are you going to do with that? I just think it's, you really, and, and here's the thing I do, like I do list multifamilies. I'll give you guys another trick. When you are listing multifamilies, please, please, please understand that your tenants can make or break your deal. You are not just selling the building. You are selling the tenants. Mm-hmm. So what are you doing to make sure those tenants come across in the best light possible. So I just delivered a $50 gift card to a tenant because I knew that I was going to have trouble with this tenant. So I made sure they understood that my job was to get them the best landlord possible. And I was not going to be able to do that if they were harassing the people coming through. Right. And uh, I mean, they're not that bad. I don't mean to make it sound like that, but tenants are on the defensive and as they should be, 
Mm-hmm. They're on the defensive when, they, when their landlords are changing over. So talk to your tenants, make them feel comfortable with the process, make them feel safe with the process. Again, I would hire a really good realtor to do that for you if you don't have a property manager in place because landlord tenant is already kind of a them us mm-hmm. kind of relationship mm-hmm. and a realtor is just a really good arbitrator in between. And then that's good for you. It's good for the tenant. It's good for the buyer. Everybody comes out feeling better because they're, they haven't got their hackles up. They haven't, they're not feeling defensive. So yeah. Amazing. Well, some really good tips, some really good insights. I'm sure you've got lots more as well. And, and Claire also <laughs> is at the right club as well. So you guys are out. Great in the club, by the way. Just great. <laughs> it's my favorite. Oh, thank you. And sometimes you, you're on the panel and you speak as well. So <laughs> Sometimes I'm honored with that. Yes, it's always a privilege. And uh, just a great group of room of people. And again, no different, like ask everybody you meet at these, who do you know that does commercial? If that's where you want to go, who do you know that does large multifamily? What do you have? You just always have to stay in state of curiosity and you, you will see the opportunities. Amazing. All right, cool. Well, on that note, let's go on to our lightning round question. So it's a series of five questions. Everybody actually gets the exact same questions. Okay. And provide the first answer that comes to mind. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. So number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book ever? Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. I'm a Keller Williams agent. So. <laughs> <laughs> number two, your favorite podcast? Uh, yours. Okay. All right. <laughs> Other than mine, do you listen to podcasts or audiobooks? Yeah, or- to tell you the truth. So I listen more to, I like, I, I devour audible books. I put them mm-hmm. on like one and a quarter, one and a half speed in my car all the time. Cause I put a lot of kilometers in my car. I put about almost 50,000 kilometers a year on my car going from place to place. So I listen to a lot, a lot of audible books. I'd probably say that's more my go-to. Okay. Very cool. So number three, what do you do for fun aside from real estate? I just took up curling. I'm curling (laughs) and I'm really enjoying that. I love to travel. If any of you go on my Facebook page, last year I went to Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, Three years ago, I went to Kenya and Tanzania, and I'm in the middle of booking a trip to India. And I take my camera with me and I look at the world through a lens, and it it just, I, I love it. It fills my soul. And I like to go to places that I know nothing about and are going to make me feel completely uncomfortable. So it's a lot like my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Being too comfortable sometimes that, you know, you don't work. <laughs> ah, yeah, 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 no. Yeah. I like being uncomfortable. It's, it's where all the excitement happens. All right. Awesome. Number four, if you lost all your money and your assets tomorrow, how would you start again? Wow. Okay. So if I lost all my assets and how would I start again? I would rent an apartment that had maybe three rooms. It's just me, I'm going to assume, not me and the kids. And then I would rent those rooms out to other people for a minor profit so that I was living for free. And then all the money that I accumulated, I would buy a rental property, like right away. I would, as as soon as I could get in one, I would get in one. And then I would just build on that continuously. And I'm a really hard worker though. Like I work a lot of hours because I love what I do. So I would just do what I did now. I would just work hard until I got where I wanted to get, but that's where I would put my money for sure. That's great. That's awesome. House hacking. It's the way to start. I mean, if you're, if you're single and you're young and you don't really know how to get started, it is probably one of the easiest, most, you know, probably the fastest ways that you can. Absolutely. Why pay, why pay room and board at university? Why not buy a student rental and have your friends live with you and pay down your mortgage? It just, it just makes sense to me. Yeah, exactly. All right. Question number five, if somebody has $50,000 and they want to get started, how would you recommend that they spend it? Okay. So here's my thing. And again, like I always say this to people, my job is not to change who you are. So I would sit down and no different than a real estate investment plan. I'd figure out your risk tolerance and everything else. And I'd find the appropriate investment for you because $50,000 is only going to work. $1 is only going to work. $5 million is only going to work if you invest in something that isn't going to trigger emotional reactions. You know, the old saying, logic makes you think, emotion makes you act. So I would definitely go into real estate investing. You just have to do it in a way that you're not going to panic and sell when you shouldn't sell. I saw one that happened. Oh, Sarah, it pained me. Mm -hmm. It was a cash flowing property, a triplex. It was all redone. They had done the rehab and everything else. And they were selling it because he said he didn't want to deal with one more faucet leak. And wow. I was like, Why? I'm like, what? I'm sure there were other things going on, but right. uh, it was an emotional decision. So whatever you do with your $50,000, you need to incorporate who you are. 
but I would get into the real estate investing as soon as possible. Yeah. Make sure it's within your risk tolerance and you're educated that you're going to make sound decisions. That's no great advice. And $50,000 can get you something like not in every single market, but it can get you started somewhere. Oh no, absolutely. And here's the thing. You can get more in real estate investing because you can leverage, mm-hmm. right? If you don't own a home, you need to only need to put like 5% down. Right. If you want to buy, if you want to buy stocks or something like that, you always can get, you can margin it, but you're going to have a call. And if you, if the price goes up or down, you have to put up more cash at any given time. If you're, if you're just starting out, you don't have that cash. Well, then that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. So leverage wise, real estate investing is one of the smartest in my opinion. Yeah, I agree hundred percent as well. So Claire, where can listeners find you if they wanted to reach out and know more about you? So I have a website, barrettrealtyadvantage.com. That being said, as you can tell, I love talking about this. So if you're not at a REIT meeting, by all means, reach out to me just through a phone call and love to sit down and have a coffee. This is my passion. I love doing it. I love facilitating other people's success through real estate and quite happy to sit down and just chat about what your goals are and, and maybe you come away knowing a little bit something new. Okay. Amazing. Any final last words of advice, anything else that you would like to let the listeners know? Listen, if you're not doing it already, figure out why and take that first step forward. Actually, yeah. Set a goal and within 24 hours, take one action towards that goal. So if it's real estate investing or you want to own a Tesla or you want to go on a big elaborate trip, write the goal down and pick one thing and do something within 24 hours. So like I said, I love to travel, but I didn't for a very long time. And it was because I was always something that I was going to get to was going to get to, but it's actually proven that you're about 76% more likely to achieve a goal if you do one thing. So if it's real estate investing, go open a bank account just for real estate investing. Mm -hmm. Just that one step will take you so much closer. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for being on Where Should I Invest? It was a pleasure talking to you. Some great tips, some great insights. And I think we should talk about our next investment, which hopefully is going to be a multifamily. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much for having me, Sarah. And I'll see you at the next meeting. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons, and at the time, they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away, and eventually, only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked, and also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.